Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. And now as Paul continues this section about the law in relationship to the believer, he now says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, not many years before John Newton died, the great pastor and hymn writer, and you know the story that he had been a slave trader. He'd been a very vile and wicked man. He had oppressed other people. He had done many wicked things. And then he had had a radical conversion, almost certainly in answer to the prayers of his mother who had been praying fervently for him. And Newton, as a grown man, was converted. He would go on to have one of the most fruitful ministries in all of, uh, all of modern history in England. In fact, it has been oftentimes noted that John Newton is probably the greatest, the greatest 18th century pastor in all of England. So much so that whenever anybody had very difficult and, and trying cases of conscience, 
disturbing things going on in them and wondering what's going on with me right now, they would go to John Newton. And Newton would oftentimes write them these letters. He was known for his pastoral letters, and he would load them with these spiritual truths. Well, on one occasion, he was with a group of individuals that he had oftentimes written these letters to, and, and he was asked to give a little devotional. And not many years before his death, he was reflecting on what the Apostle Paul said when he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Newton's very short devotional went this way. It's actually been transcribed for us. Newton said, I am not what I want to be. I am not what I want to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil. I would cling to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality. And with mortality, all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan, and I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's one of the great statements in church history. I'm not, I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I will be, but by God's grace, I am what I am. Newton understood the Christian life in a very nuanced way. I think John Newton understood what the Apostle is setting out here in Romans 7 so well, because as Paul now comes and continues, in a very real sense, a, a defense and an exposition of what, if any, role the law plays in relationship to the, the Christian, and, and Paul has already stated very clearly that we're not under the law because we've been married to another. The law has no more dominion over us. It can't condemn us. It can't justify us. That's, that's, you'll, you'll never be justified if you're a Christian. You'll never be justified and you'll never be condemned by the law. Your violations of the law can never condemn you and your efforts to keep it will never justify you. You cannot, let me say this emphatically, you cannot get God's blessing by your obedience to the law. I know the law says if you obey blessings, the apostles telling us in no uncertain terms you will never gain the blessing of life, eternal life, the everlasting inheritance, salvation by anything in relationship to your law keeping and you will never be condemned by it for the sins you've committed. That's a glorious thought. Now, the, the question then, obviously, is the question Paul asks here in, in verse 7. What then shall we say is the law sin? Now, that's a very natural question, isn't it? If, if I've been brought out from under the dominion of the law, which all men are in, in Adam by nature, so that it's no longer my master and I've been delivered from it, Paul says, and he understands people are, are hearing that, saying, well, you're saying the law is sin then, or evil. And in verses 7 through 25, Paul is going to explain, by way of autobiographical survey, exactly the relationship between the law and the believer, before the believer's converted and after. Now, this section divides very nicely into three divisions, really, and, and following Newton's statement. First, Paul is going to set out the believer's past experience. He's going to explain 
what, what happened to him in relationship to the law when he was not yet regenerate, when he was still dead in sins, when he was very religious as a Pharisee, but very dead spiritually. And he's going to explain first uh, the, the, the relationship of the law to him and to all in their, their past experience. Then he's going to explain the relationship of the law to the believer in our present experience. And then finally, he's going to explain the believer's future experience that's guaranteed there in the final verse. So we're looking this morning at those three things, the believer's past experience, the believer's present experience, and the believer's future experience. Well, notice there, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Now notice what he does. Paul is going to tell us that the law does three things in relationship to an unbeliever. Three things. First, he says, that the law reveals sin. You'll notice that there in verse 7. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. One of the very first things that God intended when he gave the Mosaic law was that it would show people how sinful they are. That, that's, that's the first step. If that never happens, then someone um, doesn't understand the purpose of the law. That is the entry point purpose about why God gave the Ten Commandments. We confessed this morning about the preface to the Ten Commandments, that God had redeemed them, and that means we ought to obey him because he redeemed. But that's not why God gave the law first and foremost. God gave the law, in the words of Paul here and in Galatians 3.19, that, that, that we may know what sin is, that it might make sin to be seen as what it is in fact. Now, why would we need the law to do that? Because by nature, we love sin. By nature, you and I love sin. And we don't want to think of what we love as being evil. We like to think this is perfectly fine. It makes me happy. I like to do it. It doesn't really hurt anybody else. It doesn't cost me much. I enjoy it. It makes me feel good. And, and we like to think, therefore, it must be good. Um... There's a cliche in our day, you know, do what's in your heart. No, don't. Please don't do what's in your heart. I'm begging you not to do what's in your heart. Um, you know, Alexander White, he was a very famous Scottish preacher of the 19th century, and a man came up to him once, and he said, he said, you, he said, Reverend White, nobody's ever done this to me, by the way. I don't know what that says about me, but he said, you must be the holiest man I've ever met. And White said, if you knew what was in my heart, you would spit in my face. You see, Alexander White knew the sin that dwelled in him and what it was in fact. But, but we need the law to reveal it to us. We need the Ten Commandments to shine the light of God's holiness and his moral demands into the dark recesses of our hearts so that we know what sin is. Paul says, I would not have known sin... For I would not have known, notice the, the rest of verse 7, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, it's very interesting. The Apostle Paul doesn't give us a lot of autobiographical insight into his life, either before or after Christ. This is one of the clear ones. And, and what 
Paul does tell us elsewhere is that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He knew the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Covenant better than anyone. He probably had them all memorized. And, and Paul will tell us in Philippians 3 that as a Pharisee, as he, he tried to live according to the law, humanly speaking, not before God, but externally, he was blameless. He tried to rigidly keep every commandment. But Paul tells us something happened internal in him at some point, maybe on the Damascus Road, maybe at that moment when Christ appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Maybe at that moment something happened and the law of God came in and began to convict him by revealing sin that was prevalent in his heart. And of all the commandments, and you've got to listen very carefully this morning, of all the commandments that Paul could have said, could have said, um, really cut into the very depths of his heart, it was the 10th commandment. Now, why is that important? The 10th commandment is unique in that I can't look out and ever see if you love covetousness, and you can't look at me and see if I love it. You can look at what possessions others have, but just because some have more, and just because some have less doesn't mean that, that those with more have a covetous heart. You can have nothing and be exceedingly eaten up by covetousness. You can have a lot and be exceedingly generous. Covetousness is one of those sins that is very easy to hide. And it's very interesting in a day of rampant sexual immorality as we are called to denounce those things that are shameful, we are also called to denounce greed and covetousness. The Lord Jesus spoke almost more of greed and covetousness than he did of sexual sin. Part of that is because he understood that the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Israel, were deeply covetous people. They were deeply eaten up with greed. They loved the preeminence. They loved money. They loved power. They were covetous. They were gripped by that. And Paul didn't realize for some extended period of time, that his heart was gripped by covetousness. Now let me say this this morning. Covetousness goes far more than just looking at the possessions other ha others have and saying, I want those possessions. It may be looking at the gifts of others and saying, I wish I had those gifts. Um, Sinclair Ferguson once pointed out that the rage that gripped the heart of Saul of Tarsus when he consented to the death of Stephen was almost certainly driven by the covetousness he had that Stephen had some greater revelation from God, namely about Christ, that he never got in all of his self-righteous studying of Scripture. That it was covetousness that led him to consent to Stephen's death. Whatever the case, Paul is telling us here, I would not ha have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, there are many who, who look at the Ten Commandments. They say, I've never murdered somebody. I've never actually physically committed adultery. Well, this is why the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, whoever hates his brother in his heart has already murdered him. Whoever looks at a woman to lust after her, has already committed adultery with her 
in his heart. You see, the commandments are very deep. They're not external surface. Well, as long as I don't do this and this and this, they reach down into the very depths. They probe the very depths of your hearts and minds. Now, that's important. And I've said this to you in the past because there are two kinds of people in the fallen condition. There are those that are externally rebellious like I was, and there are those that know how to hide their rebellion really well because they're real quiet. That's almost worse than open rebellion because it allows you to justify all the sin going on inside. Um, Paul's saying, look, the law is meant to go in and to reveal sin. It gives a revelation of sin. The Apostle John in 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. What is sin? It's lawlessness. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So the first thing that the law does the first way it functions in the life of an unbeliever, in, in the past experience of believers, is it begins to reveal sin. Then, secondly, it begins to aggravate sin. Notice what Paul says in verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, I touched on this last week. I said, if, if you tell your children, don't touch that power socket, what do your little children want to do? They want to touch the power socket. Why? Because sin takes opportunity by the commandment and it aggravates sin and makes you want to sin more. When I was 19 years old, I took a girl I liked out on the Okefenokee Swamp. Never a good date idea, but there may or may not have been illegal things involved on this boat, and we're going out and... I see a sign that says, do not enter, a little lily pad field. And so I said, hey, let's go down there. Now, if that sign had not been there, I probably wouldn't have gone down there. And we went down. It was a very narrow path with the lily pads on both sides. And we go all the way in. And the motor gets tangled up in the lily pads. And I thought, this is it. This is how I die. I die in Waycross, Georgia, on the Okefenokee Swamp. This is so embarrassing. Now, we got out of there. But, but the point is, the law, whenever, whenever the, the unbeliever, the natural man, hears the law, what his sin does is it, it takes opportunity, Paul says, and it wants to do more wrong. It wants to do more wrong. Um, this is why just telling the unbelieving world, you know, if you just try harder, if you're just more disciplined, if you just do better... It gives no power. In fact, the commandment aggravates sin, and Paul will actually say, notice this, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That that, that command actually, it aggravates sin. Now, I want to read this to you. John Murray, professor at Westminster Seminary back in the early 20th century, said sin was aroused to activity. It is no longer dead. It took occasion to stir up all manner of covetous lust. It did this through the instrumentality of the commandment. The sinful principle was aroused to all manner of desire contrary to the commandment through the commandment itself. Isn't that interesting? 
that, that our sin that is violations of the commandment wants to violate more the commandment that forbids the sin that takes opportunity by it. Now, why is Paul saying all this? Paul doesn't want you to go back and read the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Covenant and think, if I obey, blessing. He doesn't want you to do that. The Apostle Paul goes to great lengths in this chapter in Galatians to explain to you what he wants us to see is that the moral law is to work on us to reveal sin, to show us that, it is aggra- that sin is aggravated by it, and then thirdly, that sin is now condemned by it. Notice what Paul says, the third step, sin revealed, sin aggravated. And the third step, Paul says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, what does he mean? He means when he was an unbeliever, he wasn't bothered by his sin. It was as if it was dead. He went on in his self-righteousness. He went on trying to establish his own righteousness. He went on trying hard to be obedient to the law of God and keep the law. And, And it was as if sin was dead. He was happy. He felt alive. And then he says, the commandment came in. I think this is leading up to his conversion. The commandment came in, and notice what he says. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Something happened to him. The law started to condemn him, and he realized something of his sinfulness. And it brought him to a point of despair, and as it were, realizing the death that he was in by nature. That's what Paul's saying. Sin reveals, sin aggra- or the law reveals sin, the law aggravates sin, the law condemns sin, and brings unbelievers, rightly so, to a place where they feel as if they are dead because they are spiritually dead. Notice what Paul says in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life, right, if you obey, then blessing, the very commandment that promised life Proved to be death to me. Now, why is Paul telling us all this? The apostle wants us to know that the only function of the law before we're in Christ is to reveal sin, aggravate sin, and condemn sin. That's its only function. That's what God intends for it to do. And he intends for it to to do that so that we will see our need for a savior. You see, he doesn't want to leave us condemned under the law. He wants us to see that there's no condemnation for those in Christ. All of this is to show us the way the law is to drive us to Christ. I don't know if any of you grew up in a parochial school. Um, My mom did and used to tell me how the nuns, anytime they did anything wrong, would come over and pop their hand real hard with the ruler. That's what the law does by nature. Every time we sin, it's meant to pop your hand. It's not there to say, hey, good job, you're doing good. You're almost there. It's to say, not good enough, never good enough, condemned, so that you'll flee to the Savior. Now, I think Paul does something here that's very interesting. He defends the goodness of the law here as he's talking about the role of the law in the life of the unbeliever. Notice verse 12. He says, it was sin that did these things, not the law. It was sin taking opportunity. But notice what he says in verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That means the Ten Commandments are good. 
even though they do all those things to unbelievers and to us in our unregenerate state, the law is good and holy and right. There's no blemish in it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not faulty. It's not something we should say, I don't want any of that in my life, but it works on us in a very specific way. Um, I want to read this again before we look at Paul moving on from this. Edward Donnelly says this, The law convicts of sin so that people will come to Jesus. The purpose of the Bible is not to take us away from Christ. It's to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the Bible is not to isolate us so that we say, If I obey this book, I will be all right. The purpose of the Bible is not for me to say, If I obey this book, I will be all right. Donnelly says, you will never be all right. Paul's going to explain this in the subsequent verses. Even in a regenerate state, you are never all right. Donnelly says, the word of God is always meant to bring us down, to see our need of Christ, to feel our need for him, so that we will go to the one who can heal us and restore us. It's always the purpose of the commandment, is to drive us to Christ. Now, Paul does something really interesting here. He picks up in verse 14 now. And from verse 14 to verse 25, he gives us the believer's present experience. Remember I said this is an autobiographical survey. Paul, in relation to the law before he was in Christ, now what about the believer's relationship, Paul? What about those that have been brought from death to life, those who are united to Christ? What relation does the law have in their life? Now, there are some who will tell you the law drives you to Christ and Christ puts you back under the law. I hate that. I'm going to say that this morning. I hate that because it's just not biblically faithful or nuanced. Christ does not put you back under the law. You stay married to Christ. And Paul essentially is taking up the question now, what about the believer? Can't, can't the law do something good for the believer? Listen to this. Paul now says this in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Notice verse 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this this morning. There are so many ways that theologians have tried to explain verses 14 through 25. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and dare I differ with him, but here we go, says that Paul is speaking neither as the unconverted man nor the converted man, but a man under deep conviction. I do not think that's correct. Neither, neither do the better part of Reformed theologians. In modern days, there have been theologians that have tried to say Paul is speaking as if he's Adam. Because remember in the garden, Adam was alive, the commandment came, it should have brought life, it brought death. And so they say he's speaking metaphorically as if he's Adam and explaining what all men are in Adam. Others will say he's speaking as if he's Israel, personified in Israel, uh, loving God's law, but not doing God's law. I don't think any of those things are true, and here's why. Forty times, 
40 times in this passage, Paul uses the first-person pronoun, I or me or my, 40 times. There's no allusion to Adam, there's no allusion to Israel, and there's no sense that we should think that he's speaking about some like halfway condition between unconverted and converted. Paul is speaking about the experience of believers who are united to Jesus and the reality of the indwelling sin and battle that is going on within us. This is very important to get because if you don't get this, you're going to be crushed every time you sin or you're going to be self-righteous thinking that your sin is not really sin. You see? It's either going to crush you or you're going to be boasted and think you're better than others. Now, what Paul is doing is giving us a very realistic view of what we still are. Remember, Newton said, I'm not what I was, I'm not what I want to be. That's where Paul is. I'm not what I want to be. Now, Paul has already told us in chapter 6 that we died to sin, we're no longer slaves to sin, we, we are slaves to God, we are to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness, we're not under the law, but here he says there's still the presence of sin in us. A very simple way of understanding what Paul's saying is the believer no longer lives in sin, but sin still lives in the believer. The believer no longer lives in sin, but sin still lives in the believer. Now, um, Paul is still talking about the relationship that he sustained to the law of God. One of the things that's very interesting in this chapter, and you could miss it if you don't look carefully, one of the very interesting things is that Paul never says that the law of God in the life of a believer has power to sanctify you or make you better. He never says that. He never says, look, before I was converted, the law revealed sin, it aggravated sin, it condemned sin, but now that I'm a Christian, I, I keep the law, and it gives me power, and it sanctifies me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, sanctification by the law is equally as impossible as justification by the law. Sanctification by the law is equally as impossible as justification by the law. Why? Because we still have this old nature that we carry along with us. It's a lot like the shadow that follows us when we're out in the sun. We carry this old man, though he's been crucified. It, it is still, as it were, attached to us, and we can always fit back into the old clothing of our old sin nature, even though we're new, new creatures in Christ. Now, Paul is going to talk about this under the, the illustration of, of um, desire. And, and one of the reasons I think this is Paul speaking as a believer who has been already regenerated is, is he says things like, I delight in the law of God in my inner man. There, by the way, there is no unbeliever on the planet who delights in the law of God. Paul acted like he delighted in it as a Pharisee, but in his heart he didn't love it because only believers can love the commandments of God. Only a believer can say, you know what, you shall have no other God before me is really good and really good for me. Only a believer can say, I love that God commands me not to commit adultery and to be faithful to my spouse. Only a believer can love the holiness 
and the goodness and the beauty of the law of God. Paul says, he says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And then he uses the warfare illustration. Look carefully. He says, he says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, if you're a Christian, I hardly need to explain this to you. Every time you're like, why did I say that? Every time you're like, why did I do that again? Every time you give in to some particular sin and you feel grieved and your conscience is wounded and you feel awful and you hate that you did that, you are experiencing that irreconcilable warfare that goes on throughout the totality of our pilgrimage here until we're in glory. It will always be the reality. I remember asking a professor who I really looked up to in seminary. He was 83 years, 83 years old at the time, and my buddy and I were praying, and we were praying for purity, and I, I said to him, Dr. So-and-so, I said, does it ever get easier? And he said, well, I'm 83, and it hadn't for me. And I was like, dang, that's not good. I was like 25. I was like, I got a long way to go. <laughs> but what he was saying is the reality of all believers. Now, those who don't know their heart can't understand this. Those that allow things like self-righteousness and pride to fester, you know, in a very real sense, it's not the great sins that bring this out so much as the pervasive, what uh, Jerry Bridges called the acceptable sins. Gossip, slander, pride, covetousness. I actually think Paul brought out covetousness at the beginning of this chapter because he wants you to understand it's, it's those things in the mind, it's those things in the heart. When Paul talks about the warfare, he doesn't say, why do I do those things out there? He says, I find a war in here, a law in here warring against, against my mind with which I love what's right and good, and yet, and then Paul will give us that, that sort of back and forth. I, why, do I, why do I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things I want to do? Why do I fail to do the things I want to do, and why do I do those things I don't want to do so often? You see, Paul feels that irreconcilable war going on constantly in him. Um, listen to this. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, The holier a man is, the more he discerns and knows his sin. I think I've told you this in the past. Anytime you meet a minister who talks about holiness and acts like he's the example of godliness, you should run as far and as fast from him, him as possible if he never talks about the warfare with indwelling sin. Because that's a man that doesn't know his heart. This is Paul, the apostle. And, and as Goodwin said, the holier a man or a woman is, the more he or she recognizes the presence of sin in their life, the more sensitive they are to them. Listen to this. Goodwin says, uh, the believer cries out with Paul, I know that in me nothing good dwells. Notice verse 21. Notice that. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Notice what, what Paul says. He says back in verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. On his deathbed, listen to this, Martin Lloyd-Jones, on his deathbed, was visited by a minister, and, 
and his voice was very faint, and the minister asked him a question, and Lloyd-Jones said, in my flesh nothing good dwells. See, that's a man who loved holiness, but knew what was going on internally. On his deathbed, I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells. I don't have anything good in me, even in my regenerate condition. There's nothing in me that is good. There's nothing in me that empowers holiness. The law can't do it. My flesh can't do it. Now, I think it's fair and right to say that what Paul does here toward the end of this chapter really brings this home for us. Notice, he says in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and death that dwells in my members. Notice the cry, verse 24, wretched man that I was. Wretched man that I am. I actually think the present tense here, in contrast with the past tense in verses 7 through 13, explains that pre-conversion, post-conversion. Paul doesn't say, oh, what a wretched man I used to be. I had a minister in our circles, tell me years ago, when Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, he's reflecting on what he was before he was converted. That's a very frightening thought. Because what has been true throughout all of human history is that the greatest and the godliest people in the church of God have been the ones that cried out the most readily and the most often, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And those that never talk about it, they paint themselves as really holy and they've got it all together, and they're not. They're knocking over hymnals, they're doing all kinds of messed up stuff. I don't have it together, they don't have it together. Paul didn't have it all together. Paul had an irreconcilable war going on inside him. And the only thing he could do was cry out, wretched man that I am. Listen to this. Leon Morris, the great commentator, said, The great saints throughout the ages do not commonly say, How good I am. The greatest saints throughout the ages do not commonly say, How good I am. Rather, they are apt to bewail their sinfulness and say, Lord, I am a sinful man. That is the authentic cry of someone who, who believes and who is longing for deliverance from that warfare in which we are engaged. Now, let me say this this morning. The more that we acknowledge indwelling sin, the corruption that remains in us, and the fact that sin still dwells in us, the more we will long for deliverance from it. And the less we acknowledge it, the less we will be concerned about deliverance from it. Did you follow that? The more we acknowledge the continuing sin in us, our wretchedness, the evil desires that remain in us, even though we love the Lord, we love his law, we want to do what's pleasing to him, the more we acknowledge it, the more we'll want deliverance. The less we acknowledge it, the less we'll want deliverance from it. John Owen wrote a very lengthy book on indwelling sin. It's about 300 pages. And in that book, he says very astutely that what the world needs more than anything, is men and women who cry out, wretched man that I am, who acknowledge the indwelling battle within them, because he said if we had more people doing that, we would have less sin in the world. Isn't that interesting? If you acknowledge it, you're fighting. If you don't acknowledge it, you're not. 
It's a beautiful paradigm for us to really embrace and get. Now, Paul doesn't leave us there. One more thing. We have seen, first, the past experience of the apostle in relation to the law, the believer's present experience in relationship to the law, and then I want us to consider very simply the believer's future experience. Notice, he cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then notice, right on the heels of it, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, Thanks be to God, Jesus helped me put every sin that could ever exist in my mind and heart to death in the here and now. He doesn't say that. He says, who will deliver me? He's looking to the future. He realized there's a day when we will be delivered from this body of sin and death. There's a day coming when the, our experience will be that we are saved to sin no more, as the hymn writer says. Saved to sin no more. And Paul's looking forward and he's saying, this is what I am now. Who will deliver me? And he knows the answer is, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what Paul doesn't say is, thank God Jesus put me back under the law because the law is going to deliver me. You see that noticeably absent. He doesn't go to the law, he goes to Christ. He goes back to the one that we're married to. He says, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that means that the believer, while he and she wrestles with the indwelling sin, the sin that so easily weighs us down in this life, and as we long for victory over it, we are confident that one day we are going to be fully set free because of what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. He has guaranteed that. It is certain, and it is the believer's hope it's that to which we're progressing. It's going to be our experience in glory. And yet that also means, and listen very carefully, that means that through the rest of your Christian life, if you are a believer, through the rest of your Christian life, your experience will always be falling short of rendering to God the obedience that he demands from his law. Always. In this life, you will always fall short. And if I can say this this morning, I think that's why God breathed Romans 7, 14 through 25 out. So that we would know this is the common experience in this life. It's one that we hate. It's one we want to be set free of, but it is reality. It is the reality of those who are united to Jesus in this life. And yet, we are not those that have no hope. We are those that know what's coming there is a day coming, and y'all, when, when we think about glory, and you think about what it's going to be like the second you die or the second Christ comes back, the first thought that ought to come to our minds is that we're going to be free from sin. What will that be like? Every impure thought, word, and action, every selfish thought, word, and action, every proud self-thought and action, every lustful thought, word, and action. Every, every, it's, all, it's all, we're going to be set free because of what Christ did. I want to say this to you this morning. If, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus, if you don't know this indwelling reality of this warfare 
then the law has got to do its work in you in revealing sin, aggravating sin, and condemning sin so that you will see your need for Christ. And the purpose of the law doing that is that you would flee to him. Listen, my uncle right now is laying on his deathbed. He has been an unbeliever for almost 70 years. We have witnessed to him for decades. And I was praying for him this morning that the Lord would redeem him because he has rejected the gospel for so long. And now he is on the brink of eternity, and you may be there sooner than him. And the things that Paul writes here are to hasten you fleeing to Christ, to being married to Christ, to trusting in Christ, to staying close to Christ. When you sin, to going back to him for pardon, to abiding in him for power to overcome sin. You see, he's the source. He's the source, even as we make our way through this warfare in this wilderness. And if you're a believer, my hope is that as you cry out, wretched man that I am, you will follow that up with a confident, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are deep and weighty truths, and yet truths that we need to understand. We thank you that you have breathed them out by your Spirit. We thank you, our God, that you gave your law that it might reveal sin in our lives, that it might aggravate that sin as sin takes opportunity by it, and that it might condemn it and leave us feeling dead in our sins. We thank you that you have given us the Redeemer in the Lord Jesus, And that even as we who have been brought from death to life wage war against our sin and our flesh, we do acknowledge, our God, that there is a day coming when you have promised to set us free from sin. Oh, Lord, would you hasten that day? Even as we cry out, wretched man that I am, would you give us that confidence that the Lord Jesus has already secured for us an eternity of holiness and freedom from sin? Lord Jesus, we pray you would receive our thanksgiving, knowing that that day is coming and that we will be set free. We pray these things in your name. Amen.